Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected. Good morning, Team Krulak community, and on behalf of Marine Corps University, the Marine Corps University Foundation, and the Brute Krulak Center for Innovation and Future Warfare, welcome back to the Broodcast, our series designed to connect the worlds of the warfighter and PME with the best of in, in innovative and creative thought. I'm your host, Major Ian Brown, Operations Officer at the Krulak Center. Before we begin, please remember that all opinions expressed here are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Krulak Center, Marine Corps University, the United States Marine Corps, the United States Air Force, or any other agency of the U.S. government. So uh, a few months back, our guests stopped by the Team Krulak Spaces to learn more about what we do here and share our approach to innovation with his Air Force audience. And now uh, it's time to return the favor, and we are here to do the learning. So Staff Sergeant Matthew Miranda works at the Tesseract office at the Air Force's Air Staff Logistics Directorate with the mission of accelerating combat-focused logistics innovation by empowering airmen and connecting them to a network of ideas and resources in order to improve the agile combat support and mission, gen uh, mission generation capabilities of the United States Air Force. He is a aircraft maintainer by trade. He spent the last two years of his career as a communication strategist for Tesseract. Um, at the Air Force Logistics Office of Innovation up in the Pentagon, where his focus has been to develop and execute engagement plans to connect warfighters with resources to drive innovation. He holds a bachelor's degree in history from the University of Oklahoma and is currently a graduate student at Georgetown University studying applied intelligence. So Staff Sergeant Miranda, welcome. I, I say welcome back, although we sort of haven't had one yet with you here, but um, <laughs> certainly certainly welcome back to our, our virtual spaces here at the Krulak Center. And, uh, you know, definitely happy to to return the favor by having you as a guest, you know, but this is also, you know, very much in line with, I think, our respective missions of finding the other entities who are out there, you know, trying to do innovation across the DOD, connecting with each other and figure out what each other's doing so that we can tap into that. And then, you know, rising tide lifts all boat kind of thing when it comes to innovation. So I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I, I will note, I just listened to the last Tesseract episode you did with uh it was lieutenant general david barno and dr nora ben sahal and i uh, appreciate your shout out to the krulak center for um for some of the things we do here and i i am now going to cold call them and ask them to be guests because now they know who we are so they can come talk to us um but yeah, first stuff yeah but first off if you if you could expand and just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself um your background and you know how an aircraft maintainer wound up doing comstrat for an air force innovation office <laughs> yeah i know it's a I have quite the eclectic background, um, just as I kind of made my way to this position. Um, you know, my story, at least in the Air Force, I uh, won't cover anything before that, but uh, my story in the Air Force starts actually as a special warfare uh, candidate and contract. Uh, I spent about seven months in the pipeline, uh, didn't make it, uh, decided to you know quit and move on. That was a really tough decision, um, but I decided to cut my losses there and and I then reclassed into aircraft maintenance. Um, I went into aircraft metals technology. So, I mean, cool name, but uh, I was a machinist and a welder. Uh, worked on, you know, making aircraft parts and for um, ground support equipment as well. And, and I was sitting there at Barksdale Air Force Base at my first duty assignment thinking, there's more that I can do. Um, to contribute to the mission and to the Air Force. I know that there's thousands of other airmen out there that feel the same way. In April of 2020, I, uh, my, my supervisor comes up to me and says, hey, they're putting together this, this team. I think you'd be really good for it. And he forwarded me the email, and it was the Tesseract hiring announcement, the first one they ever did. And I applied for it. Um, by the grace of God, got it. And uh, in September of 2020, it was boots on the ground uh, here at Tesseract, and um, the rest has been history. And I'm sure we'll we'll cover everything that that has happened, uh, you know, then and, and in between. So uh, when I first came to the team, I was a theory of constraints facilitator with the intent of doing communication strategy second. So I was wearing two hats. Uh, essentially working two full-time jobs. Um, we knew that uh, me and one of the, the co-founders, uh, his name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Garrett Hernandez. Uh, you know him, he was one of your students at Command and Staff um, in your elective course. 
And we knew that we had to own the information space uh, to, to be successful, just like any small business would, just like any successful startup does. Um, they need to go in there and, and make a splash. And the way that I looked at it from a, from a strategy, from a military strategy perspective is, you know, we had to essentially wage an information war against the bureaucracy, right? And, and plant our seeds of, uh, of energy and uh, information and innovation across the Air Force, right? And there's no better way to do that than where airmen are every single day. And that's, that's on their phone. Uh, you know, if, you can, if you can create content that can engage, that can educate, that could um, uh, bring the, the life and the energy and potential out of, um, out of the end user, out of the warfighter, uh, much like you do here at the Crew Lock Center, you know, here on the Brutecast and your other mediums of communication uh, and your outreach, um, then the better that, that we can become and the more we can, we can unlock that, that energy. Uh, so we knew that that was going to have, that was going to be a critical component to us being successful as an office. Now, um, that, that wasn't easy, right? You know, starting off uh, with a splash in the social media space with the podcast. Um, you know, with our website uh, and the way that that we've structured that, you know, all these other mediums of communi communication that are unconventional to the regular Department of Defense, um, that that was a, a learning curve also for you know for our staff to and to earn trust um, to um, uh, uh, to to be able to be that transparent, right, and to and to leverage these uh, communications a little bit more. Um, uh, li liberally and, and more flexible than an average public affairs office would. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it's certainly been an adventure, but uh, really the short answer to your question is uh, we saw this space that we had to fill and, and I took the step forward to fill it and essentially created my job. Um, and about a year in the team said, Hey, you have to invest more time into just your communication strategy. It's not working out. You working two jobs at the same time, go figure. Right? <laughs> it's hard for anybody to do. Uh, and, and I worked full time in, in uh, CompStrat for about the last uh, year and a half or so, or closer to a year and a half. Great. Thanks. And yeah, no, I, I do appreciate the, one of the, it's both a, it's both a challenge and an opportunity in innovation offices, you know, like Tesseract and the Grillac Center where, you know, you can create your own job and then you've just created a giant pile of homework for yourself to go do in the process of doing that. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the punishment for doing a good job in the thing you're doing. I also, I, I had, I don't know if I, I just blanked or didn't know, but I, I do remember Garrett Hernandez from the elective course. And that's just funny how, uh, you know, we say the Marine Corps is a small world, but I guess maybe the, the innovation space is a relatively small world too. So that's really cool that he's over there. I, um, that I just hadn't put that two and two together. So it's awesome that he went, he went from command and staff to uh, um, over to you and, and I'll use oh, this it was as inverse. So it was went inverse. from Tesseract okay. to, um, uh, to school. And then uh, now he's at a different assignment. Great. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll figure out how to get the timeline straight in post-production. <laughs> um, just want to set, yeah, just, just set the record straight there. Yeah. No, it's, it's good. It's fun to hear his name again. And it just, it's always cool to hear, you know, what the students who've come through here are off doing, um, uh, you know, outside of the classroom. Okay. Oh, enough on that. So, um, you sort of t touched on it a little bit, um, with how you got there, but I want to sort of switch gears back to, you know, Tesseract itself. Where did it come from? Uh, you know, who started it? Why was it started? What, what need was identified that somebody in the Air Force thought the Tesseract office could fill? And, and then maybe if you could describe sort of from that starting point, you know, how is it, how has it grown and how has it sort of shaped and morphed itself? As it's uh, as it was built and started actually executing its mission. Yeah, that question can be a whole elective course within itself, but I'm going to try and <laughs> I'm going to try and keep this uh, as short as possible. The story of Tesseract is fascinating. The way it's evolved and and the way that a, a small idea has grown to impact the entire operation of the Air Force A4. 
the idea of Tesseract started with then Major Garrett Hernandez and then then uh, Captain Kelsey Smith. And they were both uh, at the Education with Industry program, um, which it, for those of you that don't know, um, Education with Industry or EWE for short is a program where warfighters get to go to the private sector for a year and learn about organizations and work actually as as an employee of that organization and then quarterly provide reports and then at the end of the year um, provide your uh, your capstone paper about what you learned and then what recommendations we can bring back to the air force garrett had gone to amazon to work with their robotics department and Kelsey had gone to Delta Tech Ops to work with predictive and preventative maintenance. And they came together at one of the EWE student meetings, right? Because, you know, they all syn synced up every quarter and then realized a lot of their findings were, were similar. That we needed to, our force, we, need, we needed to empower um, our airmen to, to generate ideas um, and we can trust the frontline warfighter with more than we currently do. And like, how do we unlock and untap that potential? Um, Amazon has their Amazon Connections program, which unlocks the voice of employees across the organization. You know, at Delta Tech Ops, they have a a unique setup where uh, a frontline mechanic uh, or maintainer can uh, talk to engineers at the front offices to um uh to ask questions directly about hey what what's going on with this process how can we change this process and there's an open lines of communication up and down the chain of command um that are able to unlock solutions um at a faster rate than what we currently experience so they they both saw similar aspects to um to how both organizations were operating and decided to write their ewe capstone together and with the recommendation to set up um, set up an office that was able to accelerate this change. Now, their original recommendation was a, a little different. Well, it's actually a lot different than what it is now. But we've been able to be strict on our vision and flexible on our details as we've we've gone along the last couple of years. Um, originally, they wanted a um, an office. They wanted the Tesseract team to be in two separate places, uh, one in Atlanta, uh, co-located with Delta and the Georgia Tech Research um, Institute to work with uh, predictive and preventative maintenance and theory of constraints. And then another part of the team was recommended to be up in Boston, co-located with Kessel Run and the MIT Air Force Accelerator uh, to work on tech solutions. Um, and also, um, there is... Um, uh, organization called Vespin works with uh, business enterprise um, solutions, uh, you know, with our, um, you know, with our software within the, the business enterprise, where that's logistics and all the other supporting elements. Um, and uh, eventually that was narrowed down to just being in DC. And it was funny whenever we got the hiring announcement, we didn't really know where we were PCSing. I didn't know if I was gonna live in Atlanta or Boston or DC, uh, three really good cities, but um, it was just it was just funny how all of that worked out. They wrote that joint paper in with that solution with the idea in mind that they were both going to be at the air staff as their follow on assignment, um, and they would be able to work on this together. So um, when they got to the air staff, they took a long shot and they emailed uh, Dr. Will Roper, um, who um, who eventually. Uh, gave them responded and and essentially co-signed and backed their idea um, quickly. Um, uh, then Brigadier General Hurry, now Major General Hurry, um, uh, co-signed the idea as well and has been instrumental in, in our support and advocacy as we've been barreling through the bureaucracy. And eventually, we've had uh, we we had the opportunity in March of 2020. Um, to have our charter signed by uh, now retired Lieutenant General Barry, um, who uh, signed our charter into existence to um, uh, to support the um, what was well the sustain uh, the strategic sustainment framework, um, which was what we were originally assigned to do, 
uh, to operationalize the the SSF, as it's called, um, and, and and operationalize theory of constraints. And there's a, a host of things that were in that initial charter. Um, after that, um, that's when we were able to, or I say we, but it was then Garrett, Kelsey, and then actually they able to take a couple of interns who just came out of the academy um, that were waiting on their next assignment uh, to help um, get the team ready for, for hiring and acquire more individuals and, and lay the groundwork for what we had to do whenever we finally got boots on the ground. Um, then in August of um, August of 2020, we had the first uh, Tesseract teammates on the ground. Uh, uh, then Lieutenant Chris Ford, now Captain Chris Ford, was the first teammate here. Uh, and the team has now since grown to 16. That was the original count. And we were uh, split into those two teams of, 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 we called it then TOC and tech. Now it's, a, it's evolved to being the process advancement team, which is advancing the theory of constraints and all process-oriented change um, within the logistics enterprise. And then we have our concept integration team that works with everything from material, like any material solution from software to hardware um, uh, to um, what's called our foundations program as well. Um, that's all uh, on that side of the house with, uh, um, with all of those airman ideas. Uh, so that's a, that's how it started, um, and that's a little bit uh, of how it evolved. But keeping in mind that, and and, and Dr. Roper um, foot stomped this in, in the interview I did with him. He was like, "Yeah, you got to be, uh, you have to compromise, and you have to be flexible if you want to be uh, successful, especially in this space." Uh, because when when we look at the innovation ecosystem, and we see these organizations like the you know us. Being you know Tesseract, and then you see Kessel Run, and you see AffWorks, and you see uh, Platform One, and all of these organizations pop up. Um, they have all gone through uh, the ringer of of the system and the bureaucracy, and it's only made us like stronger and sharper, and um, and we're all better because of it. And I think um, I, I think the Air Force has done a tremendous job. Uh, proliferating this ecosystem and environment, and uh, and I think that uh, that the Marine Corps is also. And there's another reason why I I touch on force design a lot in my podcast interviews is because um, uh, when I look at accelerate change or lose in force design, I feel like the Air Force and the Marine Corps are leading the way in this uh, in this charge to um, uh, to innovate and then create a more adaptable force for the future. I hope that covers. You have any other like follow-ups to that that I might not have touched on? I do have one on on something you mentioned here a couple of times, and I'll I'll get to it before I get to the next question. Um, although I do, I had noted in the test rack episodes that force design does pop up an awful lot for you know an Air Force podcast where an office that you know kind of looks at logistics innovation specifically. So I guess yeah, I guess it's you know good good on us and good on the commandant for getting that message out. Um, you know that that's the direction we're going on. So, uh, and, you know, obviously it's, it's, it's a work in progress, but it's, it's definitely an interesting time in, in this service, at least to, uh, to watch things are getting changed and turned around, you know, turned upside down, backwards, forwards, and sideways and in very new and interesting ways. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's, it's worked out as a, as something to look at for the Air Force. But I also, I also know that it's true that I think, uh, you know, both the Air Force and Marine Corps leadership, you know, with the Accelerate you know, accelerate change or lose. I'm sorry if I'm messing that up. They sort of, they seem to be, you know, kindred spirits in that aspect. And I know that the Commandant and the head of the Air Force have, have more than once sort of gotten together and sort of presented a united front on that. So, hey, we're, we're doing jointness. It's, it's how, how awesome is it? I would like to touch on that just a little bit more. Sure. Um, I, well, when you look at the beginning of uh, General Berger and General Brown's tenure, um, they, they've written a, a joint paper before. Right, so that says a lot about their relationship and their viewpoint on how they want to evolve the force and, and doctrine. But when when we look at accelerate, change, or lose, and then force design, I mean, this is also going to be a pet project of mine um, as soon as I'm done with this semester of school, because I want to start writing things I want to write about. <laughs> uh, is um, the comparisons between the two, right? And we look at um, when you look at force design prescriptive in nature, right? Of what um, 
what the force needs uh, needs to be uh, in order to be adaptable in, in a fight, particularly against China. Um, and then when we look at um, when when we look at the Air Force, right, accelerate, change, or lose is a commander's intent directly from the four star. And 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 when we look at the way that they're both being executed, um, I feel like the you know I feel like force design is is a is a top down approach almost with also with with lines in the document saying hey we need we need feedback we need feedback from the from the fleet in order to un like understand that these changes are applicable and they are useful but this is what we've told Congress that we want to do and this is how we're going to execute where the the accelerate change or lose initiative in mindset is a ground up approach right where we have essentially planted the seed asked to take charge asked airmen to take charge and then seeing what comes of it and while tesseract predates accelerate change or lose and so does kessel run and afworks and a few of these other organizations um accelerate change or lose has accelerated our uh, or as given as co-signed our um ability to and, and empowered our ability to execute our mission right um but less of a top down and more of a bottom up, which I find uh, interesting, and I would think it's the it would it should have been the inverse because the Marine Corps' um, maneuver warfare doctrine of you know trusting the the lower levels, right, and then you know in the strategic corporal mindset, and um, whereas in the Air Force, uh, mission command and maneuver warfare concepts are young and. Uh, I've talked to more than one senior leader that said, hey, the Air Force is leaning more into these concepts uh, because we understand that we're going to need to be more decentralized in our decision making uh, in, in a forward environment um, when we look at things like agile combat employment. Um, so I think that as opposites as uh, or as the Air Force and the Marine Corps appear to be at face value, hey, you you can throw all the chair force jokes to me, right? I, I mean, I sit in a chair all day. <laughs> um, but uh, um, I think that we're coming together and weaving our uh, our mindsets and our perspectives and executing in ways that make us close, closer together than further apart. Um, and, and then also with a little bit of my background as well. Um, I mean, I actually did start my young days in my career as a midshipman um that ended up not working out um I, i'm a graduate of officer candidate school and I, I got in trouble with alcohol um but that's another story but i spent four years of my career um being inculcated in this uh in, in understanding what that mindset in that in in the marine corps is all about and being able to see that in this perspective in this lens uh in the air force had i think I think there's a lot to learn uh, from the Marine Corps, and I think there's things that the Air Force can uh, can teach the Marine Corps as well. But that's just a touch on why I think it's important for our Air Force audience to to learn more about force design, because I, I think that it's something that that everyone, the Army and the Navy and even civilian organizations should look at, you know, putting together uh, um, even annual reports as to, hey, this is the update on force design. Hey, th this is. Um, we understand that we got some things wrong. Let's update this. Let's let's change the direction. Let's get feedback. Let's in, just like the early days of um, that you talk about with with the roots of maneuver warfare, challenging each other with what we think our perspectives are with things like the war fighting society, with things like uh, the proliferation of social media with the Marine Corps, um, you know, that you see like uh, uh, pages like Kill Zone and Constellation Group and um, uh, podcasts like Lenses of Leadership and and publications like Lethal Minds. Those are all things that um, that I admire and that I think that we should emulate um, as an Air Force as well if we want to build a culture to to win the future fight. Yeah, no, that's a that's a, a good sort of comparison, and and we are I think in a sort of a unique historical period because I don't know if it's sort of just the uh, you know the winds of change blowing in the 21st century in general or you know, if it's personalities, you know, with General Berger, General Brown, they just, you know, like I said, kindred spirit kind of thing. But it's it's interesting that, you know, the Marine Corps and the Air Force are not two organizations that historically have, you know, really, you know, sort of tight affiliation, you would think. 
but uh, you know, we're both doing things to try and change and update for the future. And, and uh, we'd be foolish not to look at each other in terms of stuff, stuff we're doing. And, you know, the, the, the blurry lines between the two, I'll give an example. And I do want to get on to more questions here. Um, you know, but in, you're probably aware of some of the, we do a number of war games here and there's, there's one in particular that our, you know, longtime non-resident fellow and war game designer, Sebastian Bay has worked on, you know, but he created a, a, a game based on changes of force design to help Marines better understand, you know, what those changes would look like on a future battlefield tactical map. Right. But the other thing he did was introduce all the other capabilities from the, from the other services. So I was running one of the scenarios earlier this week where, you know, you had a, a Marine stand in force on an Island, but what were, um, you know, outside of some, some Navy vessels that were out there, what were the other like longer range over the horizon fire support that they they could call on? You know, that's Air Force long range fires. Right. And there's there's nobody else that can do that besides the Air Force. And so part of our own our own education of how we're going to operate here in the future, you know, distributed, dispersed, looking to other parts of the joint force to support us. It's understanding what those things are. Right. So, I, you know. The first time I think about if uh, if I'm alone and the only over the horizon fires are coming from coming from an Air Force bomber, you know, hey, be nice to have that introduced into a Marine scenario. So it's not the first time the Marine deals with that. OK, I think we've we've uh, we've we've gone down this rabbit hole for quite a while. So I do want, <laughs> I do want to give I got a couple more questions and then we're starting to get some in the chat here. So I'll make sure we get to those. So um, a couple of times I. I, I we don't if you don't want to we don't spend a lot of detail on this but you've mentioned this theory of constraints which is sort of one of two components for what you are looking at at the or working on a tesseract and it's not a term that i'm familiar with so maybe if you could like what is the theory of constraints what are you trying to 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 solve or use that as part of the tesseract approach to innovation so when we look at at process oriented change and and we look at um the the current space that that we live in as well and and you being an aviator uh, i'm sure you're you're familiar with the the headaches in firefighting of of maintenance professionals right you have chaos uh you know you, well you can have you can be multitasking right and you can be overwhelmed and you are doing so many things at once right but the theory of constraints offers a lens to focus and finish on tasks. And mathematically, if you focus and finish on what's within your bandwidth and it's in smaller packages, um, like let's say you have five, you have five jets on the flight line um, and, and you need to get those, those jets airworthy as soon as possible. And you think you have enough personnel to get after all five jets at that one time. That's just, and, and you have your, your maintainers, you know, cranking away. If you just focused on two of those or three of those, um, or even one of those at a time, you're going to get all five jets ready to go faster. Uh, but that's hard whenever you are in a culture and a mindset where, uh, where, firefighting is where the demands are just so high and you have to be working on something to look busy and we're in a culture where um doing something is better than doing nothing theory of constraints is broken down into and that's just to kind of like set the scene there a little bit um but the five focusing steps and in, in the theory of constraints um was originated by um he was actually a i believe he was a a, a physicist um, his name was um, Eli Goldratt, and he wrote a book called The Goal, where he outlined this this process and methodology, um, where you you go out and you um, you identify your constraint, you subordinate, so you identify what's going on in the system, um, you uh, subordinate the, to the constraint by putting all of your resources to that constraint, um, that constraint being the most important. The constraint is the the most important bottleneck in the organization. It is like what is like what is stopping you from from being successful? Like, hey, that jet might be that, or this part of the process could be the constraint. Um, so now let's subordinate all of our individuals that we can to this constraint to alleviate that constraint because it's slowing down our entire process. Um, now. 
um, we can go ahead and try and increase the um, the capacity of that constraint, elevate that constraint with uh, um, with other software and processes and solutions, uh, and then we we continue to just repeat and, and recycle to um, uh, to make a more efficient system. Um, but I actually have my TOC facilitators and experts uh, in in the chats right now um, that that can provide some some more information on that um, when we go through the the questions and answers. And we also have some amazing resources on our website. And um, uh, Shridhar uh, Chandra did an awesome podcast with us explaining this from top to bottom, and he could do a way better job uh, than me. Um, but when we focus and finish on tasks in, in smaller batches, um, we can have greater flow within the, the system itself. Um, all right, I got sort of one more question for you and then I do wanna to get to the stuff in the chat here from the audience. And that's, um, you know, it's sort of to date now looking at um, Tesseract, it's started, it's been around for a while, for a couple of years now. What are some of the concrete impacts that you've seen the Tesseract has had in the, around the Air Force in the time that it's been in operation? There are a few wins that I get excited about when, when I'm thinking about our, our wins and successes. And we've had the opportunity from, from a technical perspective to really change the way that we, we bring software to the Air Force. You know, we're not a software factory, um, but we are there to advocate for airmen and bring the voice from the field to the air staff. Uh, to inform uh, policy level decisions. Um, one of those software solutions uh, being called the Torque suite of apps. And uh, those are right now with Athena and Kronos, those are for air power scheduling and man manpower scheduling. When we think about all of the Excel spreadsheets across the entire Air Force that are for manpower scheduling or aircraft scheduling, it gives, I mean, there are probably millions of Excel spreadsheets out there. And this is one central software solution that airmen have been asking for for years um, that, that, we are, um, that we've been able to deliver to the Air Force. Um, we've been working with the 309 Software Engineering Group out of uh, Hill Air Force Base. Um, we've worked with other entities um, like Kessel Run also in the past. And um, it took months and months and months um, to to gain advocacy and support and and build some wins and uh, and build context behind why it's important and then recently this year we were finally able to get that as um, uh, as a program of record within the um, the logistics IT portfolio which is a huge win to have that funded um, we have about seventeen thousand users on Athena and Kronos now and uh, that's grown about. Uh, I mean, that's grown well over 10,000 this year alone. Um, so that's been exciting to see. Uh, another one of my favorite projects that we have that we've been able to uh, start budding at the, at the Air Force level and not just the logistics level uh, is our program called Foundations. Uh, Foundations uh, started with, um, the, uh, with the idea of the Amazon Connections program, which asks an Amazon employee every single day one question and uh, about what's going on in the workplace around them. And they're able to inform, uh, you know, sen senior leaders within Amazon uh, over a series of what turns out to be millions of data points, what's going on within the organization. On the opposite side of the spectrum in, in the military, we've had our DOC survey, right? Which is a hey, one time a year, this is what's going on. And uh, typically it's dated information and there's barely a response rate. So what we've been able to do is starting in the early days of, of Tesseract deployed uh, the first version of foundations and we've grown it to, we had grown it to about 30 or so organizations, whether that's at the squadron level, the flight level, and then even at, at some shops. Um, and to, to do these recurring surveys, not on a day to day basis, like Amazon's been able to do, but we've been able to do it like on a weekly or, or, or monthly basis. Um, those surveys also working in conjunction with a format to have conversations about the survey topic. So it's not like, or the survey results rather. So it's not just numbers that are just getting sent to an inbox. 
um, or just an anonymous um, survey results that are never going to have context built around them. Um, they are um, uh, they are mechanisms to have uh, leadership informed uh, or, or data informed leadership decisions. Um, we've been able to evolve this to um, uh, with a micro survey uh, test deployment with an off-the-shelf commercial solution with backing from the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force. Uh, and uh, over the course of this six-month test, then we're going to be able to uh, see if this is going to be a viable uh, software solution They go to the entire Air Force. Um, we think that culture is the bedrock and just the, and, and, you know, no pun intended, but the foundation for what we need to be an adaptable force in a future fight. And um, and that's why uh, I personally think the foundations program and the micro survey concept uh, is is going to help elevate and accelerate um, this uh, this process to to build a true culture of inclusion within the DoD. So that's another uh, an, another huge win there. We've been able to work with dozens and dozens of airmen ideas to make them uh, actual material solutions and bring those to whether it's the MAGCOM, uh, the MAGCOM level or at the base level uh, to make their ideas uh, come to reality um, and, and, and making sure that we are taking ideas to, um, to sustainment and getting them connected to the, to the uh, program office uh, of record. Um, some programs that we have in the future and other software focused solution um, is called Rawhide. Um, you know, Rawhide is, uh, uh, is streamlining um, the mobility process and and bringing applications that were typically only uh, tied to a desktop and 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 helping uh, streamline processes by just you know th uh, an application through your phone or or on a tablet. Um, so uh, port dogs and, and warfighters that are uh, that are moving the mission. Um, are not tied down to antiquated processes um, on on a computer or even uh, on paper as well. Um, other things that another huge win that I think we've been able to really pick up steam on has been uh, inspection development framework and that concept and the kidding concept as well. Um, when we're able to, with the theory of constraints lens, take uh, these massive home station checks and break them down to keep the aircraft flyable for a longer period of time and generate missions instead of having that aircraft sit on the ground and building and then in 2023 building a software solution um, that will help elevate that constraint because uh, we're able to you know kind of figure those things out and uh, right now but without a true software solution uh, we're not going to be able to systematically get after that process that's another thing I'm really excited about. Um, I can keep on going down this list, but uh, for the sake of time, I won't. But on our LinkedIn, we recently dropped our annual report um, that goes through a lot of our big wins. Uh, we, we'd invite everyone to not just to shamelessly plug here, but if uh, to stay tuned in with all of our updates um, as a team. Uh, following us on LinkedIn is probably um, probably your best bet because uh, we keep up to date information always flowing through the system. Uh, as we continue to wage this information war against the frozen middle, right? <laughs> um, and uh, that that annual report is is jam packed with awesome stuff. Great, and I'll I'll know right here that when I post this episode, I'll put a put a link to that annual report so people can go and check out all the all the things that you've been able to accomplish. And uh, it was just interesting listening to that that list of of wins, you know, right as you called it. Um, it's stuff that doesn't necessarily maybe jump out right away as you know something that fits in innovation right like it's not it's not a shiny new drone or a you know some sort of ai avatar you know talking at you like cortana right but it's <laughs> i i think like it's it's the stuff that matters like it's the stuff that makes your um your your day-to-day -day ability to do your job more effective and more efficient and like you know and simply an innovative way to keep more jets flying to generate more sorties to generate you know, overall aviation overmatch against an opponent, like that's that's a very impactful innovation, right? Even if it's not something that, you know, is, is what you see in the Hollywood movies when it comes to what people think about new inventions. So um, it's really interesting. It's really cool. To, and and again, as, a, as an aviator, like I maybe I can appreciate a little bit more than most, like keeping the birds flying. That is what you care about the most. 
and finding ways to, to do that more is, you know, especially if you have airframes that are a little bit older and cranky, you know, they don't always want to fly, right? But if you can find ways to get more of them flying more of the time, that's better for the pilots, better for the training, better for, it's better for everybody. Um, so it's, that's a, it's a really interesting list of stuff that you had there. All right, I'm, I'm done with my list of questions, so I'll make sure we give time here to the audience. And uh, I've got a couple here from uh, Brewcast regular, Albert Lee. So I appreciate your questions. And um, there, there sort of two different ones. I'll break them out individually here for you to answer and then to the audience as well. Feel free to throw in any questions you have to our guests here as we're discussing the first one. So first question uh, from Albert Lee, and he's going back to talking about Dr. Will Roper, who you'd mentioned earlier on. And uh, sort of a, a two-piece question about Dr. Roper. Um, one is that, some of the uh, he, some of the sort of the high profile projects he was trying to get after, like the air launch rapid response weapon testing schedule, did not end up happening. And then uh, and then Dr. Roper is no longer in that that job, right? So has uh, Dr. Roper's departure affected uh, perception of innovation inside the Air Force? And then sort of the the flip side of that is, you know, what what was his legacy of innovation for the Air Force in the time that he was there? And have you seen any changes or evolutions in Air Force innovation since his departure? What I find so interesting about Dr. Roper's legacy that he's left is when I've met with I've met with multiple three star, four star level senior leaders that in conversation mentioned Dr. Roper. I mean, he lives in our memory and like lives in the the foundation and the fabric of the Air Force innovation ecosystem. His departure, we were sad when he left. And when he left, I, I'm, I'm sure that there were some program offices that that got, you know, that were a little bit more worried than others. It's not like that we were one of his, you know, uh, you know, shiny objects, right? Uh, he was he was helping two airmen, you know, make this idea possible with the, um, you know, while he was in the position that that he was in. But it it wasn't like when when he left, we were freaking out that we were not going to exist anymore because we're already well our you know well on our way to sustainment with you know working with uh, Major General Hurry and and um, and really digging in our roots. When we look at other organizations, like uh, when, when I when I look at the Air Force Innovation Ecosystem, the the ones that really pop out are um, you know our AFWorks and Kessel Run, MIT AI Accelerator, and Platform One, um, and all of those as well were kind of uh, already had their um, uh, you know their their roots their roots dug in, and we still look to him for inspiration. And we know, like, he all lives in us. Um, what's interesting about the uh, the namesake of Tesseract, it also comes from Dr. Oprah as well with his perspective of, like, our airmen defy entropy every single day. Like, they, the Air Force breaks down and airmen put it back together again. And the Tesseract in the Avenger movies defies entropy, right? So, like, he is... Uh, he's part of our namesake and 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 we always dig deep uh, to defy that entropy. Um, but I can't speak for all the other offices that are out there, um, but um, hit the the tempo that he set and the impact and the influence that he made on senior leaders that are still in the seat today um, is everlasting. And and he inspires me and. Um, uh, yeah, I did a great interview with him uh, about a month and a half ago that I, I'd invite everyone to to listen to just to hear his his perspective on things. But he actually is coming back in in a small capacity, well, in a different capacity, right, with the Defense Innovation Board. Um, so his voice is still going to be heard, um, and his impact is still going to be made. But he he's a hero to me. All right, thanks. And it's funny you talked about um, defying entropy on a daily basis. Uh, I, I don't know if your recent immersion in maneuver warfare or not has has plugged something in there, but I'm like, you know, that that's part of the whole underlying concept that Boyd was talking about in terms of keeping your system from becoming closed and decaying and entropic is is finding ways to inject new life into it. So mm -hmm. I don't know, coincidence or not. Um, but now I'm going to look at the Tesseract from the Avengers as a maneuver warfare object, too. So um, <laughs> it's going to change those movies for me. All right. So another question from Albert Lee and it goes to an interview he recently had with retired Air Force uh, Lieutenant General Deptula. 
in which uh, General Datula mentioned that the Air Force is an inherently expeditionary force. And what, what are your thoughts on that that perspective? And um, is that maybe a linkage to, to why the Air Force and the Marine Corps are sort of that kindred spirit marching together? Because we, you know, Marine Corps looks at itself as inherently an expeditionary force as well. You know, I might have answered this question differently before I interviewed uh, Major General uh, Kenneth Pravratsky about the Falklands War and his perspectives on like the definition of truly what expeditionary warfare is and how rarely we've done it as a force. Like, yeah, we've projected our power forward. Um, and we, I mean, our national security strategy for decades has been having, you know, soldier, sailors, airmen, and Marines scattered across the globe um, and just being, you know, being deployed. But I'm not necessarily sure it fits the definition of expeditionary in the way that, um, expeditionary warfare in the lens of uh like let's say guadalcanal right or the falklands war really is um i think that when when we look at the mission sets that are going to be required today uh or not today but the the mission the mission set that's going that the demand is going to be tomorrow when we look at agile combat employment and the way that we're going to have to uh uh differentiate our operational art um we're going to have to be expeditionary in in nature uh to um to be successful and uh i'm not sure that the the cultural foundation that that we have is that expeditionary uh, like war fighting mindset right i i can imagine soldiers or marines and, and other like uh, tip of the spear war fighting elements you know i, I can kind of picture them in that environment but um I, I think that there's a lot of work that's being done across the force to um to make airmen uh, culturally capable uh, to endure the, the fog and friction of warfare and combat. Uh, my next assignment is going to be uh, actually with the 193rd Special Operations Wing, fly MC-130s, and um, and they're like dipping their toes into agile combat employment and working with the AVSOC uh, um, MST concept mission support teams. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to getting like my my hands dirty with with that concept, but. Uh, I think by definition, we're not necessarily expeditionary, but I do think we project our power further and more dynamically than any other branch of service. Um, I hope that answers the question, but that's just Matt Miranda's thoughts. I, I thank Albert for the question because that's now I'm now wondering, you know, just how expeditionary has, you know, has the Marine Corps been um, and in recent years and your point about power projection, like I. That's a, that's an interesting distinction because yeah, can the Air Force launch bombers, you know, from the, from the American South, fly them around the world, hit a target, and come back home? Sure, that's projecting power. Like there is no nothing else that projects power like that. Is that expeditionary? I I don't know. And you know, I'm glad you mentioned Guadalcanal because that's for me personally, that's one of my favorite case studies of and and, and going to you know Major Brown's sort of personal theory of conflict is arguably the last time like both the you know the u.s the navy marine corps and uh you know and, and air force support echelons there you know we're really um in a in a highly contested environment where all the domains were contested right all the time and you were just you were constantly trying to like you know gain a temporary advantage in each one to you know, really, sometimes it was just to endure, right? Just to keep your presence there. It, I'm hard pressed to think of another, you know, a historical situation since then when, you know, the U.S. services were really contested across all domains in the way that Guadalcanal is, which is why it remains one of my favorite studies, you know, especially something worth looking at as we talk about peer conflict. You know, arguably every everything since then, we've always owned at least one or more of the domains and the contest, you know, was sort of reduced to one. Right. You know, but but when was the last time we were challenged sea, ground, air and, and really had to 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 just keep our toehold there and, and sort of endure. So power projection is not expeditionary necessarily. All right. Well, I don't uh, no more questions here in the chat and we are coming up on about an hour here. So um, Staff Sergeant Miranda, any final thoughts or things you'd like to share about Tesseract before we go? I, uh, I invite anybody to, to reach out to me uh, or to the team on our website to, to learn more about us. Um, we have a lot of information that, that we can share about our experiences, about the projects in that, that we have that are also joint capable, right? Um, if you're interested in, um, if, if you're interested in 
manpower and aircraft scheduling tools, hey, reach out to us if you want to learn more about um, if you want to learn more about uh, predictive and preventative maintenance. Uh, we got you know we have people that we can connect you to. Um, the list of our portfolio is is pretty extensive. Um, our website is www.tesseract.af.mil. Um, and our LinkedIn is Tesseract AF. Those are all of our, all of our tags, but yeah, please, you know, please follow us, um, interact, ask questions. Uh, you can find me, at, uh, Matthew Miranda on the global, and uh, you can also, you know, if, if you reach out on LinkedIn as well, um, I'd be more than happy to, to share, uh, lessons learned and, and other, other perspectives. And especially, um, you know, talking about the the information and cognitive domain and how we've been able to uh, to advance our mission from there but uh, you're getting my also other side note you're getting my brain going on Guadalcanal and that can I mean you can talk about that for hours and hours and hours um, but uh, I think Guadalcanal and the Falklands War are the two most important case studies that uh, I think airmen should dig into um, and and I know the, the, obviously the Marine Corps digs in them into them as well. Um, but if we want to be an expeditionary, uh, you know, force for the future, those are two models that we need to, or at least, um, those two, you know, battles and one war, another battle, right. Uh, paint a picture of what the future fight might look like, but then you pair that with all these other initiatives that, that we're doing, you know, to enable that build a more adaptable force. I think there's a lot to learn from the past and there's a, a lot that we can do for the future. So. I appreciate your time today, sir, and and having me on, and and uh, it's it's truly been uh, it's been a great time, and always here to help. Yeah, great. Well, uh, I again from our end appreciate you coming on to the broadcast, and you know I think again for both of our organizations, this is all part of the mission is to find each other, plug into each other, and then you know share whatever you know share what the other is working on to the benefit of our wider communities. And I will note to the audience, uh, yeah, to the question about the website, I'll put that into the show notes as well when we post it. So you can go ahead and check it out on your own time. And then, you know, I would also encourage audience listeners to go ahead, you know, follow the Test Track podcast as well. They've had some great guests on there. Uh, you know, I talked about the, your more recent episode with General Barno and Dr. Uh, ben Sahel. But also, I, I think it was one or two before that you talked to Lieutenant General Mike Dana, who is, you know, one of our, one of our Crew Lack Center non-resident fellows here as well. And he's he's just always got, you know, something really smart to say, especially about, you know, his fourth industrial revolution ideas and, you know, what expedition or, you know, what logistics looks like in the 21st century and all the all the new capabilities and challenges that go into that. So, you know, go ahead and listen to that episode, too. That's a good one to our audience. Thank you for everyone uh, who joined us today. Our next broadcast is right around the corner where we'll have First Lieutenant uh, Kayla Haas, who's Comstrat Director, Marine Barracks, Washington, D.C., who is going to tell us about her unique educational and training approach to breaking down concept, complex concepts to their essentials with the help of the humble whiteboard. Education is what's important. Training, preparation for the expected. Education, preparation for the unexpected.